Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 88. Again, that's Psalm 88. It's 494 in the Pew Bibles, although we don't have pews. <laughs> We've got a table Bible. If you need one, feel free to, to borrow one over on the table. Psalm 88. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to the Mahalath Leonath, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me, You have made me a whore to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Let's pray. Father, no matter what, if we live long enough, we suffer. It is a great mystery at times. It is a great mystery in certain circumstances. Our feelings, our ideas, they seem to pursue us and to come after us. But Father, I ask that you would help us to focus on you, your trustworthiness, your word, and your son, and not on our own understanding. These things are in so many ways too great for us, and to explore them here on this sunny Sunday morning is... seems rude in some ways, but your word enlightens us. Your word 
shines in the darkness. And it is only by your light that we truly see light. Help us now, Father, to get this, that we can love you more and we can trust you more by your beautiful Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the most famous philosophers in Western history, a very atheistic philosopher, famously said these line, anything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Now, we say that a lot. Maybe we don't realize the source, but the source doesn't necessarily taint the idea. You think about something like a, a knot on a tree, right? Well, that knot is in response to something. That's, that tree is trying to get stronger and trying to push that, thing, push that thing out. You think about no pain, no gain, right? Muscles. The only way you're going to get stronger is to have resistance, to push back. That doesn't kill us, but it makes us stronger. It is resistance. But the idea doesn't necessarily work for everything. Think about this. Say I decide to go out and do some gardening. All right? Don't laugh. And... I take a spade and a hoe and a couple other tools and I go out there on my hands and knees for about 10 hours. These uh, squishy, book-loving hands would be the cause of great suffering and wailing on my part. Now, why is that? Because I haven't been doing those things, right? So I get down there and I do that work and sure enough, whatever doesn't kill it makes it stronger. Now, initially, you get a blister, but eventually, you get the beginning of a callus. The callus is a built-up piece of skin, and that causes you to experience less pain and less suffering. You become stronger after you do that. But there's a loss, isn't there? If I build up a callus... It isn't just pain, the ability to feel pain that I lose. It's the ability to have sensation. I lose my ability to feel things and to touch things. I worked as a phlebotomist, as a person who draws blood, and I did that for about seven years. And these two fingers were everything to me. I was the guy they sent on the people that didn't have any blood, as far as they could tell. And it was because these two things could feel just about anything. God just gave me that gift, and I was frankly a little surprised by it. <laughs> but if I go out and I do, did some hard work, say I would go and move some stuff or help build a, a, a fence for a friend or move some furniture or whatever, the next time I got back, I just couldn't feel it as well. I couldn't track those things down because that had happened. It isn't just pain that it kept me from feeling, it's anything that it kept me from feeling. Now think about that in terms of emotions. When a person is repeatedly hurt, what's the phrase we use? That they have developed a thick skin. The idea is that they are not bothered by whatever emotional difficulties they come to because they've already experienced that. They're like, eh, they've, they've, uh, they've developed a barrier, right? But that barrier 
is also in thick skin, it also implies that you're less able to feel things when it comes time to feel them. That barrier keeps you from feeling. Something is lost. The atheist philosopher had it wrong in emotions because it doesn't just not kill you, something important, our ability to feel, our ability to experience the full range of what God has given us, something is lost. This is not what God would have for us. That's not what the Bible tells us about. If we're experiencing pain, we trust God and he builds us up in him. That's the first five verses of Romans 5. The idea is that as we experience things, we don't look to our own ability to get tougher or stronger or to get built up in some way. We look to God to support us through it, and he carries us through it. By that faith, we are strengthened in him because next time we're going to trust him even more, right? But we haven't lost our ability to feel. We haven't developed a thick skin. The reality of our own fear and difficulty and suffering It's meant to, within the body of Christ, to give us insight into other people's suffering. And the only way we can have that insight into other people's suffering is to have felt it. If we develop a thick skin, we can't do that. We are responsible to each other in the body. All hands on deck, right? We are responsible to each other in the body. And if we can't feel, then we can't do our job, whatever it is. The Jews of the Bible believe that the death of everything is appointed by God. But they also knew that it wasn't the way things were supposed to be. They had a, the whole, um, you ever heard of Shiva? It's a Jewish mourning period. It's a seven-day mourning period. And during it, the design is, of the tradition, is to make you experience every last drop of mourning. You go to the person's house and you live there and you put things over the mirrors and you sit close to the ground like Job and you wear uncomfortable clothes and you don't do kind of not all bathing, you don't issue all bathing, but a lot of personal care, you just stop doing it, all right? You're meant to get right down to the ground and get right down to brass tacks and say, what am I experiencing here? It's meant so that you can feel every last bit of it, all right? It's also meant to point you towards God, that you return to God through death. It's designed to make you feel every last bit of it. Um, The death of everything is appointed by God. The Jews believe that. As the saying goes, you're immortal until you're not. Death is only normal as the fact that God takes us. And so the necessity of trusting God in death, in suffering, becomes a necessary part of how to understand what we do here. But again, the Jews understood that death was not natural. Death was not the way things were supposed to be. That we were meant to be together, in communion, all of us and God, forever. So suffering, loss, pain, we don't really have the mental files for that. That's why it's so confusing to us. That's why it's so disorientating. We were designed to be in communion with God and each other forever. So when that doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen to everybody who's ever lived on the planet, except for Christ and two other guys, everybody who's ever lived except for three guys, 
they die, and everybody experiences it along with them. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Think the high priestly prayer. Pretty much every time we do a uh, benediction here, we read what's called the high priestly prayer. It's uh, number 6, 24 through 26, and it reads like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful towards you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. It is as much an assertion of trust that God's going to do it as it is a blessing that he would do it. There is no may there. Usually we say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. There's no real may there. That's not really part of it. It's kind of assumed because we trust God to do these things. Okay? But face to face, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Communion with God. Face to face with God. Knowing God. Him looking at us. His countenance raising upon us. That means he looks at us and he smiles. He says, hey, it's you. That's great. That's eternity. That's the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be cut off from that. We're not supposed to lose that. We are supposed to be there loving God and loving one another forever. So when we lose that the way it's supposed to be, face-to-face, loving each other, we experience great pain that we really don't have the emotional wiring to deal with apart from all the gadgets and defense mechanisms that we've created as a result of just being fallen people. In our scripture reading today, we have what is the only psalm that has no resolution. The author is experiencing pain that seems to him to have no way of escape. The patterns of psalms contain some hope of resolution, usually even the darkest ones, but this one is the exception. And what we notice at the beginning is that this was written for the purpose of being sang or read in public praise of God. To the director, it says. There are directions for a director as to how it's to be used in public. Now, this is a very dark psalm. What could be the purpose of having such a dark and unfortunate and sad thing sung in public? Imagine if we all got here and the fabulous worship team came out and did this, like, dirge, this, like, Irish song about thousands dead and untold suffering. Okay, goodbye, have a, have a good day. Like, wow. Don't tell me. You would, you would lean over to somebody next to you and be like, that's kind of a downer. Right? So, why would you have that in public? Now, one strong possibility. I want you to look at your Bibles, please. Verse 1. Excellent. Uh, Excellent reading, by the way, Mr. Fergus. Mahalath la'anath. It remains untranslated there because a lot of scholarship's a little bit unsure about the meaning. Some think that mahalath is some kind of an instrument that you're going to be used in public worship, and anath is some kind of performance. And that's probably true to some degree. But there's other meaning. There's another meaning behind that word, behind those words. And really, this is what it says. The directions to the director are, do this song. Read this in public upon being deeply wounded until you are bowed down or pressed 
down. The direction to the worship leader is, read this when things are going so bad that you're either literally or figuratively bent over. Wow, what an unfortunate scene to be in synagogue on that, on that uh, Friday night. As is the case with most of the suffering in the Psalms, it's very hard or impossible to imagine this situation. And that's a blessing. Most of the Psalms, we, we only know the barest details. Some of them we have a pretty good idea of what's going on. Most of them could be anything. And that's wonderful, isn't it? Because we can read those psalms, those painful psalms, and we can say, I'm feeling that. God has seen this pain. God has gone before me, and he understands this because he has heard this from his people, and he has asked that it be put in his book so that we would read it today. I can take this and I can say, God knows that I'm feeling this, and I can trust him that I would cry his words out to him and that he would hear my prayer. The Psalms are wonderfully vague in many places about what's causing it. The first line, actually, go down to line three. For my soul is full of troubles. The psalmist's core, the emotional thing, the thing that makes him him, his personality, it's full of troubles or evils. Now, full is also a word that could be used of being sated or having enough to eat or drink. Say you come in from a desert, right? And you're so thirsty and you begin drinking water as fast as you can. You drink the water so fast that you begin getting kind of full and then eventually being like, okay, that's enough water. You really needed the water and you were dying for the water at first, but eventually you drank so much of it, you're like, oh my gosh, that's enough. All right? That's what he's experiencing with what he says as evils. What could such a thing look like? My life draws near to Sheol. The meaning here is not so much that the author is dying, but that he's hit rock bottom. My own personal translation of this is, my life is so close to Sheol, that I could touch it. I am so close to the bottom that I can reach out and I can touch it. Now, I don't want to get a lengthy discourse about Sheol. There's there's a lot to talk about there and it's just not worth going into. But if you understand it this way, that the Hebrew author is thinking of a tomb, not just just any tomb, not just another specific tomb, but any tomb, some place where There is no speaking or laughing or praising God. It's dead. Dead silence. There is no praising God there. The author feels so close to rock bottom that he could reach out and touch the place in which he would just stop. But what's really important about this is, and you're going to hear this a lot It needs to be pointed out that though the author feels like that, the author is still there talking to God about that. That's the condition of his heart. That's the condition of his mind. He is so full of troubles that he's had enough of troubles. 
Now, what could that mean? You'd think one trouble would be enough, right? But he's, so, he's got so many that he's just overwhelmed with it. And he's so close to rock bottom that he can touch it, and he is still addressing God in that place. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. The author's difficulty isn't just emotional, it's relational. Whatever the suffering going on here is, we begin to see that he believes he is regarded by others as hopeless, and they are repulsed by that. The person who has no strength can also mean the person who has no help. God isn't helping him. He is stuck in the miry bog. He is stuck in the pit. He can't get out, and he knows the only way out is with God, and God's not doing it. He doesn't understand why. The author also makes kind of a snarky comparison with freedom and dying. The author knows that to go to the pit is to have no voice, to have no freedom, to be stuck there, to have no opportunity to love God or any people. And so he says something with a little bit of sneer to it, and he says, I am free, just like dead people. He knows it's not true. He says it because it's so repulsive. He says it because it's so absurd. But again, it needs to be pointed out here. Even as he's experiencing this, he is still addressing God. In that place, he is still looking at God. He is still speaking to God. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. That initial line, your wrath lies heavy upon me, the grammar emphasizes upon me. You never put a preposition at the, at the beginning of a Hebrew phrase unless you really, really want to put emphasis on that preposition. That preposition is floating, floating on its own. Upon me. This is upon me. I remember a, uh, an illustration a uh, uh, preacher did a while, I heard a long time ago, in which the person was playing basketball, and they were playing a t- really rough game of basketball, and uh, he went up for a, a rebound, came back down, and as he was coming down, a person stuck their finger in his eye, accidentally, about up to there, and he describes it as, I was one big, throbbing eyeball. All he could feel was I, pain, and I, and that's all he could think for a few minutes, just doubled over in unhappiness about it. God's wrath is lying so heavily upon him that all he can think about is the upon. He is suffering because of the heaviness of this that is crushing him. It isn't just that God has made the author's condition such that his friends don't want to be with him. It is, in the author's view, that God has taken all his loved ones far from him, that he has literally appointed him to the position of abomination. Okay, I appoint you abomination, and all your friends say, yuck, and they beat it. That's the way he feels. 
again. It needs to be pointed out that the author is still addressing God through all of this. Look down to verse 16 with me, please. We'll leave aside a little bit for now. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This picture is not of a lingering kind of dull suffering. It's a picture in which there are repeated, unified assaults. All your waves keep crashing onto me together again. All these waves coming in from all sides, boom. Doing it again, boom. Boom, that's the picture. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. That's the way he's experiencing this. Anyone who knows him intimately, everyone he loves is gone. And literally it says, my companion is darkness. My pal, my friend, guy who's right here with me. The only one that knows me, knows me intimately, is darkness. And I suspect it's the kind of darkness that you can feel. You ever been in a room that's so dark and it feels like there's just uh, this dark sensation around you? Don't leave me up here. Okay, thank you. A couple people. Super. That's what he's experiencing. And that's it. That's the ending. Thank you. Go home. Have a good day. Take care. What are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with an ending like that? The only one who knows me is darkness. The author is convinced that God's hand is in it. You ever been to a Christian self-help section? at a uh, Christian bookstore? Does that seem like a contradiction to you, too? There's really no such thing, is there? That's, that's an absurdity. If we succeed as a lover of God, as a servant of the servant at all, is because God has worked in us for his good pleasure. So what are we to make of this statement of helplessness as hopelessness, hopelessness that this person is going through? There is something that is terribly, unforgettably clarifying about pain. Just like the guy with the big throbbing eyeball, your awareness is so clear and yet so restricted to that pain. It's all you know. It's all your understanding. It's all you can even think or hear or taste or see. Now, some would say, to get over pain that we need to be more selfish. You need to take care of yourself. Problem is, you haven't thought of, been thinking about you enough. More you, that's the answer. Now, didn't you get you there in the first place? Does more you sound like a good idea? Now, you can't speak to every situation because there are certainly situations in which people do need to take care, better care of themselves. But overall, more you is not a good idea because it's still just you. Some would say, less selfishness. Well, perhaps, but for what purpose? Just to keep yourself busy so that you're not experiencing the pain, so you just keep yourself distracted? The whole purpose, going back to the Shiva idea, the whole purpose of having Shiva, of having this, this situation in which people are having this focused period of mourning, the whole reason for that is so that 
people have no escape. They have no place to go. No escape hatch. Nowhere to run. Got to sit there and deal with it. Deal with it. Sit there. That's the purpose of it. The whole community, all, all hands on deck. Everybody's trying to figure out a way to make sure that, they, that Enoch stays in his house so that he deals with the death of his son and doesn't get busy on his whatever it is. No, you've got to just go back in there, take that. We'll, we'll bring you some food. Don't worry about it. You deal with that. So less selfishness isn't necessarily the answer because usually that's just another uh, mechanism. That's just another avoidance mechanism. But try telling people that more of them, either in terms of more selfishness or less selfishness so that you can stay busy, try telling people that more of whatever they think in their head is the right thing is actually the wrong thing. Try telling people that. That's a tough sell. You try to tell people, no, more of that won't work because that's just more of you. And more of the other thing, you think it's not more of you, but really it's just more of you because you're just doing the stuff you were going to do anyway, except you're doing more of it. So more of you is not the answer. But you try and tell people that, they're like, get lost. I got to fix me. Right. But how'd you get there? What does unselfishness mean to a person, to a people, to a society and a civilization where everybody determines what each person wants is right or wrong? The Bible talks a lot about those kind of stuff, doesn't it? those kind of things, where each person determines what is right and what is wrong in their own eyes. If that's what's going on, then suffering, then the result of suffering is only something that makes you stronger in some way that is suitable to keep you safe and not so you grow in the way that God wants you to grow. I'm going to read a short, eh, medium-length quote by C.S. Lewis, so have patience. To surrender a self-will, inflamed and swollen with years of usurpation, that is, with years of rebellion against God, is a kind of death. We all remember this self-will as it was in childhood, the bitter, prolonged rage at every thwarting. Every time we're told no, explosion. The burst of passionate tears, the black, satanic wish to kill or die rather than give in. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems well with it. The human will will not want anything but what it wants as long as everything is cruising along nicely. Everything's going fine. I got nothing. I got no reason to change. And even if everything's not going fine, If all we know is ourselves, we're still just going to do what we know. While we call our own life remains agreeable, if our life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. What then can God do in our interests but to make our own life less agreeable to us? That is, God's work in us is to make things hard. That's not a fun answer. That's not a Jeremiah 29, 11 coffee mug kind of an answer, is it? God's got a purpose for your life. He's going to make it hard. Don't want to hear that. Sorry. 
He thinks, as long as the person thinks that their modest prosperity and the happiness of their children are enough to make them blessed, then God can only make sure that they know that that's just not enough. He troubles them, warning them in advance of an insufficiency that one day they will have to discover. He warns them in advance of an insufficiency that we will have to one day discover no matter what. An insufficiency before God that we will have to discover no matter what. We are insufficient before God. If all of us were just going on our own merits, we'd all be weighed on the scales and we'd all be found wanting and God would say no to all of us on our own terms. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, right? And we usually think of that as the curse, okay? It's a little bit of a misnomer because it's not really, part, it's not really termed that. But think about this. If Adam and Eve had been left in the garden, they would have had everything they needed. They would not have known their need of God to the degree that they did. They would have died in their sins and that would have been the end of it and none of us would be sitting here. God kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden is an act of mercy because he forces them to know just how much they depend on him. God throwing them out of the garden is a gracious act. It's not a curse. In the same way that the difficulty that we incur in this world forces us to look more closely at God. It's not a curse. It is at most discipline from a God who adores us, who died for us. And so it is with this psalm. The director of this worship was to break this, uh, this uh, whiz-bang psalm out when they were suffering so badly that they were, again, literally as well as figuratively bowed down. Which brings us to the title of the sermon, So That We Would Not Depend on Ourselves. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says that things were so bad, I just wanted to die. And I don't think he's using... Rhetorical hyperbole there. I think he's just saying, oh, that's enough. I've had it. I've had it. I've had it. I don't think he's not saying, oh, it's so bad, like I wanted to die. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, I don't know, know everybody here, obviously, and really only a few of you I know reasonably well. But I'm just going to say this anyway. Is it safe to, to assume that no one here is more mature in faith than Paul? Is it okay to say that? Super. This was one of Paul's last letters, okay? He had fought the good fight. He had run the race. And even at this point, God is still backing Paul into a corner so painfully tight that Paul would trust more in God and less in himself. 
Now, if God's doing that to Paul near the end of his life, where should we expect we are on that spectrum? If we want to have a greater love of Jesus, if we want to have a closer relationship with the creator and the sustainer of the universe, if we want a deeper communion with the one who wants us so badly that he sent his son to die for us, then what else should we want but that which draws us closer to God? Nobody longs for suffering. Nobody longs for those kind of things in their life. Nobody says, man, I can't wait to get in that because then I'm closer to God. Nobody, nobody wants that. But God has wisdom that we don't. And God uses those things to do that to us. He constrains us and molds us and makes us into that. And he uses the tempering of pain and suffering. And I don't say that lightly. I really don't. I don't mean to sound glib. And if I do to anybody, please don't hear me like that. Because that's not the way I mean it. But we have a vision of eternity. We have eternity stamped on our eyes. The suffering in this short little blink of life is nothing in comparison to the glory of eternity. And the suffering in this life is meant to temper us for eternity. And by temper, I mean, for those of you who don't know the term, say you have a glass or a piece of pottery and it's reasonably strong, but you need to cook it up to a certain degree, and what happens is the molecules, really, really hot, begin to fuse in a way that makes it much more strong. A good example would be diamonds. Somewhere between coal and diamonds, what happens is a lot of heat and a lot of pressure. And those little, those little carbon atoms in coal fuse multiple more times and, multiple, and much more tightly, making it almost impenetrable, making it the hardest natural object. That's what God does. It's not an easy answer. But he makes us trust him so that we would give him more glory. Go back to uh, verse 9, please, in the psalm. The psalmist writes, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. Every day I call upon you. I spread out my hands to you. Spread out my hands. Certainly, an idea of reaching towards God. And I, don't, and I think he's certainly not doing any less than that here, but when I see this spread out my hands towards you, I think of a person saying, I surrender. I can't, I can't fight anymore. I can't do anymore. I see an expression of, get your hands up. Does that make sense? That we would say to God, I don't want it my way anymore. My way has been a considerable failure to this point. Or I have imagined it to be a success, but in your eyes it's just not. So I surrender. Do you work wonders for the dead, the psalmist says. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? The author is asking rhetorical questions. He's kind of assuming that they, don't, that they either don't need an answer or the implied answer is no. No, you don't work wonders for the dead. No, the departed don't rise up to praise you. It's kind of what he's assuming. But he's assuming it in asking it in, his, in that he's saying in his mind still, again, here, I am looking to you, God, because no, the departed don't praise you. And yet, here I am doing it. 
So I still have a chance because you're still with me, so you still love me, so I can still look to you. The, the answer to the rhetorical questions is no, in the psalmist's mind. In the middle of such suffering, the glimmer of faith in God to deliver. Every day I call upon you, Lord. Every day I spread out my hands to you. In the middle of such suffering, this glimmer of faith in God to deliver, to reconcile him, to bring shalom, real peace with God, face to face. I know you, I see you, I like you kind of faith. The psalmist does not mock God with his pain. He doesn't accuse God with his pain. He just brings his pain to him, knowing that salvation is from the Lord and no other. And not only that, but look back at line one. Look back at the first time the psalmist addresses God. O Lord, God of my salvation. He starts this painful lament that has no good ending, that he's continuing to suffer. He starts this lament with Yahweh. He starts it by saying the covenant name by which God promised to deliver his people. That's faith. His suffering is impenetrable. And he still starts with Yahweh. He doesn't start with me. He starts with you. O Lord, God of my salvation. Word for salvation is Yeshua. The word here is Yeshua T. That T at the end means I or my. Okay? Salvation, my. God of my salvation. Yeshua is the word for Joseph. Yeshua is the word for Jesus. Now, I'm not looking for some Bible code here. It's not like they're making some hidden reference to Jesus. But the fact is, in Matthew, in the first chapter, Gabriel comes to Joseph and says, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will deliver them. He will reconcile them. He will assure that we can be in union together. He will assure that my salvation, Yeshua T, my Jesus, my salvation. He is addressing God in the strongest terms, assuring that I have no hope, I have no way out, I have no escape hatch. Without you, I have nothing. Lastly, it bears pointing out that surely none but Jesus, none but Yeshua himself has known the pain of this psalm so intimately. Throughout Christian liturgy history, this psalm has been used as a Good Friday psalm because it's despairing, because it doesn't have a particularly good ending. And Jesus died and they put him in the tomb. We'll see you in a couple days. Okay? It's not a good ending. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded with the Father to hear his cry, a sad cry of pain as waves 
of unified wrath from God washed over him, just as in the psalm. Jesus said to his friends, those who would shortly abandon him, those who would shortly see his crushed body as an abomination, leaving him with darkness as his only companion, Jesus said to those friends that his soul, his conscious state was one of such sorrow that he felt like he wanted to die. Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? My God, my God. He starts with God, he starts with God, he starts with God. 88 points to Jesus. It isn't just about us trying to understand our suffering. It isn't about the fact that God knows what our suffering is and is trying to reach out to us. It is about the fact that God has gone before it and has experienced all of it and has lived it and has died it so that we can be here today praising him. Jesus trusted in God and not what he was feeling. And he did that for you. If you trust him, and if you seek him, and you praise him, you will find shelter from the unified waves of pain and terror in his time. He will raise you up. For as Paul said, That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Pray with me, please. God, these messages are impossible to deliver without the knowledge that people suffer in ways that each of us don't understand, that each of us can't comprehend, that we can't empathize with. And God, please help me to say this properly. It is never the case. It is never the case that the delivery is superficial. Because even as the person who delivers the message may not understand the person who first spoke the message into the psalmist knows that pain. Teach us to trust you, Lord. Have mercy upon those in our midst who are suffering. Shine your light upon them. Show them that it's not hopeless. Show them that the light at the end of the tunnel is indeed you. That the light, our own star of Bethlehem, leading us to you, that we would be able to bow down, not from pain and suffering, but from delight and worship and love and glorifying you. Help us to understand our suffering through your eyes and not ours. And help us, Lord, to trust your truth 
and not our feelings. We need constant help with this, Jesus. We need it all the time. We trust you to do this because you came for us and you died for us. And we know that you will go as far as you need to go. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.